0: Welcome to the What, Why, and How Can I podcast. And today we will be talking about um, your career. All I know about you is that you're a physician. I don't know exactly what you do or or who you work with. Is that correct? Yes. Okay.
1: So um, I'll tell you about a little bit about what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a chronic pain management physician, Mm -hmm. which is a subspecialty of anesthesiology. So to get to where I am, I had to become an anesthesiologist first. Okay. And I was trained in uh, putting people to sleep for surgery and doing other procedures to make their pain go away. Okay. And having had that foundation, I then underwent um, additional training in pain management, which is an entirely different kind of uh, practice. hmm because anesthesiology is primarily um, operating room based. So I spent 99% of my time in an operating room
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, versus what I do now, it's almost exclusively clinic based. So I'm in an office uh, setting all day and I see patients in an office setting who uh, present or uh, show up with complaints of pain anywhere from the top of their head to their toes. Mm-hmm. and Since I'm uh, trained in many injection techniques, a lot of what I do outside of uh, the office um, is procedures, and they can range from small, little injections right in the office to very complex um, procedures that resemble injections, but they're actually minimally invasive surgeries. So uh, what I do is uh, I identify the source of pain, uh, ask myself a question, can it be dealt with with medications. If not, can it be dealt with physical therapy or some sort of rehabilitation? If not that, then I'll do procedures uh, like my injections or other types of procedures where I can either uh, deliver medicine to come to inflammation or I can uh, kill the nerves using electrical current or I can put cement in broken uh, parts of bone and and cement them and stabilize them.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: Um, If none of these uh, procedures help, then they get a referral to either an orthopedic or a spine surgeon, mm-hmm. and uh, that problem is dealt with uh, surgically, which, of course, has a much greater recovery and uh, loss from work, etc. Okay. But that, that gives you a pretty good scope of um, what I do. Uh, it's hard to, dis- to pin one, one disease state because there are so many.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, top three diagnoses that I see are chronic low back pain, Number one, number two is chronic headache slash migraine and number three is chronic neck pain and then everything else that follows.
0: Okay, so do you do the injections yourself or are you more of the guy that analyzes <clears throat> the patient and then kind of writes, okay, this is what this patient needs and then somebody else kind of does does the work for you?
1: No, I do all the work myself.
0: Okay, so you you analyze the patient and you do and you provide the drugs. Um, so I I treat the patient from beginning
1: to end. Okay, and if I refer the patient, what that means is that I don't do the actual treatment; somebody else does. Okay, but I only refer patients out to surgery.
3: Okay, okay, gotcha. So
1: unless 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 it's unless it requires extensive surgery. And some of the small surgeries I can do myself. Um, then I'll refer the patient out to a surgeon for, say, shoulder surgery if <laughs> it requires repair, mm-hmm. cutting open of the skin, mm-hmm. uh, reattachment of muscles, um, realignment or fixing of bones. Then that that that's a entirely different surgical specialty,
2: okay. which
1: I'm not in. Um, um, my my specialty is a hybrid specialty. So I do everything up until. Uh, somebody needs to get cut and that typically involves all sorts of minimally invasive procedures okay. which in, in, include needles, ports, injections of, of sorts yeah.
0: Okay so I, I don't want this to become a political question per se and not you specifically but are physicians like you uh, some people would like to blame physicians like you for like say the opiate Crisis or the drug addiction crisis in the United States um, today. Do you know a little bit about that fact and how, uh, what part uh, physicians played in people actually being um, addicted to drugs or drugs that that help people? What's your take on it?
1: So I actually know a lot about the topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one. It is within the realm of my specialty, mm-hmm. uh, because I prescribe opioids on a daily basis. Okay. Uh, number two, I lecture on a topic uh, throughout the state, uh, multiple agencies, mm-hmm. and I also run a 12-step addiction program at a local church um, that also includes uh, people addicted to opioids and other uh, drug classes. Mm-hmm. Opioids aren't the only addictive medications, mm-hmm. uh, number one. Uh, there are many other addictive medications uh that we uh, rarely hear about, uh, especially on, on, on the media, mm-hmm. those medications belong to a class of drugs collectively known as benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. So what that means is um, there's a molecule that has a certain structure, and all drugs that belong to it um, are called that. So if you heard of uh, uh, brand names like Xanax, right. um, um, you know, Clonopin. Uh, those are all anxiety medications, and these are highly addicting medications. And so withdrawal from these medications can be fatal or lethal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, withdrawal from opioids uh, actually is not lethal. You can you can withdraw from opioids and nothing will happen. You'll ha- you you'll be sick. Uh, patient will will experience flu-like symptoms for a couple of days, but they will not die. Okay. So unlike unlike for the uh, medications that treat anxiety, those are highly addicting and. Withdrawal from them can cause a seizure, and the seizure can be fatal. Okay, wow. There's also a class of drugs called hypnotics
3: mm-hmm.
1: that comes from a Greek word hypnos, which means sleep. Those are sleep aids. So a lot of people don't get regular sleep, get have a poor sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. And then they begin to rely on medication like Ambien that we heard about more recently in the media um, of <coughs> uh, certain celebrities acting strangely while well in these medications and blaming their erratic behavior for for the medication so these right. medications are also addicting in the mm-hmm. sense that um uh, one b- begins to rely on sleep for them because they can't sleep without them
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they rewires their architecture in the brain they they become dependent on them so addiction and dependence are uh somewhat misused mm-hmm. they are different things they're different things um but, you know, it's outside the scope of this conversation. Um, but going back to the opioids, mm-hmm. so the the problem with opioids has been uh, is that we've had opioids for a long time. They're not new. Opioids have been used for thousands of years. Um, they've been used, they've been even um, mentioned in um, Odyssey, written by Homer, um, and they've been used throughout Asia. They've been used throughout the Middle East. And we've had addictions going back to the Civil War when we had over 100,000 soldiers addicted to morphine uh, right after the Civil War because there's so many wounded um, after this event. Okay. And r- shortly after Civil War, uh, we had two things needed for addiction. We had a needle, mm-hmm. which was uh, discovered... Um, about 40 years before the war, and we had isolation of morphine. So morphine was isolated in 1800s from opium.
2: Mm, before okay. that,
1: everybody smoked opium, and that's, that's how um, addiction persisted throughout uh, centuries and millennia. But mm-hmm. um, we've had the first opioid epidemic in the United States after the Civil War, and so there were different eras and periods where we had opioid epidemic, and we had one in San Francisco. Uh, where Chinese laborers under harsh conditions uh, smoked opium. And in fact, the U.S. government um, uh, thought that heroin would be the answer to this epidemic, and they, they synthesized heroin, thinking that this would be a good treatment for morphine addiction. Oh, and wow. we, found out, we found out later that the opposite was true. So we've had opiates for a long time. They're mm-hmm. not new drugs. They're not going to go away. They're used for treatment of severe, chronic, around-the-clock pain
2: mm-hmm.
1: because other agents simply don't work. And what are other agents? Uh, one could go, you know, look at the counter at Walgreens, and for example, see, you know, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. If you can see Tylenol, but beyond that, there's mm-hmm. very little that one could get without prescription.
2: Okay. And
1: then so so then uh, someone comes to a doctor. Could be a primary care doctor, like family medicine, or somebody like me. Mm-hmm. And they get medications from different classes their nerve medications their medication is that are in a class of antidepressants
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and they work differently they work on you know different areas of the brain to kind of dull down the transmission of pain but ultimately nothing works as good as an opioid an opioid makes modern surgery possible people have very traumatic surgeries people mm-hmm. have their chest split open right. to have the, their heart fixed people have heart transplants you have knee replacements. Uh, people can't undergo uh, massive spine surgeries, which weren't possible before. Mm-hmm. And they recover just fine, all thanks to the opioids. The problem with opioids is is that they're digging in the sense that they relieve pain
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and also elevate someone's mood. Mm. And so um, the the word opioid epidemic didn't come on the media until probably about 20... 20 13 through 2016, and then mm-hmm. it really gained momentum uh, 2016 going forward. But what happened before that is there was a, um, a one company in particular called Purdue Pharma. Mm-hmm. Purdue Pharma. Purdue mm-hmm. Pharma took a drug that was synthesized and made in Nazi Germany called oxycodone
2: mm-hmm.
1: And they made a, a delayed release or extended release formulation of the drug, of the drug.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: then and then they uh, packaged it, and marketed this drug very aggressively. And they used a paper from 1980, which was a fraudulent paper, and it wasn't a, a large study. It was basically an opinion piece. Mm-hmm. And they went to doctor's offices um, with this information, um, and those were typically young female drug reps, representatives from the company. Yeah, and they, and they spread this lie that if you put an oxycodone molecule into an extended release formulation, then it is not addicting. And, and then they lobbied very aggressively to make pain the fifth vital sign. So vital signs are blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, et cetera. They wanted to make pain a fifth vital sign. And so they lobbied for that very aggressively. And what that would mean is that you, as a physician, were obligated to treat pain mm-hmm. if a patient has one. And if you didn't, you could be liable, and mm. um, your medical license would be at risk. So there's many different facets to this story. Um, If there's a company to blame, uh, everybody loves to blame Purdue Pharma, Mm -hmm. but ultimately the people that are responsible for opioid epidemic are physicians, without a question. So who has the power to write a prescription for these medications? Physicians do. Who has the license to write for these prescriptions? Physicians do. They have a special license called DEA Mm -hmm. uh, certificate. Mm -hmm. It's, It's issued by the Drug Enforcement Agency. And every physician that writes for these medications must have one, including myself. And I've had several. Okay. And so, um, for a physician to write these um, medications, we have to make an assessment: mm-hmm. Is this pain? Is this pain so resistant to treatment that opioids are justified? Okay. Um, the problem we have in the United States: we have an aging population. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, uh, problems with insurance coverage mm-hmm. uh, and massive costs and so opioids were a cheap alternative to complicated degenerative conditions that cause pain okay and so doctors uh, started seeing that as a solution to the growing chronic pain problem okay and and, and prescribing them more and more liberally so um, and, and uh, surgeons in particular, when they would do surgery,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they were very liberal with writing large prescriptions or large quantities of these medications. Mm-hmm. And um, if uh, someone took this medication on a regular basis for 30 days, their chance of addiction would be close to uh, 40%, 40, 50%. Well wow. So someone went home uh, after surgery with a bottle of these medications and they took them exactly like the bottle said, which mm-hmm. a lot of patients would assume that that's what they're supposed to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then um, they would probably become addicted to these pills if they're on it for a month. So we realized that uh, as a medical community, um, uh, and this in part was from education by physicians within my specialty and others, mm-hmm. and uh, guidelines came out limiting the quantity of these medications prescribed and the conditions for which they could be prescribed. Okay. So the opioid epidemic was caused by physicians, without a doubt. It was perpetuated by greed, um, by a company called Purdue Pharma, mm-hmm. um, and they made 34 billion dollars on a drug that was not new. Wow. Uh, a drug that was um, as old as um, as we can remember, dating back to the World War II. Mm-hmm. And this drug in particular was incredibly addicting for wow. many different reasons. And, and it was addicting because it was, number one, an oral medication, a pill. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And number two, as a molecule, it's a very addicting molecule. More addicting than, than most opioids, like oral morphine or oral hydrocodone mm-hmm. or or codeine,
0: etc. Really? Et and what's crazy to me is I'm I'm 27 but about 10 years ago I was 17 18 19 and the community that I grew up with a lot of the people that I grew up with became addicted on this specific drug oxycontin and um a lot of the young guys to this day I know are still um, kind of are bearing the the unfortunate the, the bad results of of Purdue Pharma and and what you were saying, the physicians that prescribed it, and I know most of them didn't get it from from physicians. they bought it from other people. but is it that easy for physicians to prescribe or were physicians given like um, were physicians given a bonus based on how many pills they sold or drugs? how does that system work?
1: So it's illegal to receive payments directly from um, a manufacturer or, Supplier of any type of medication, uh-huh. um, but it was uh, it, there were bad actors mm-hmm. within medical community, and there were people, especially specifically physicians,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that used their uh, medical license as an excuse to become a neighborhood drug dealer.
3: Okay,
1: and so they would recklessly uh, write these medications uh, without medication, uh, without appropriate physical exam without appropriate workup. Mm-hmm. And they would write them in large quantities knowing that people that would uh, receive these prescriptions were not legitimate pain patients. Okay. That, they would, that they would engage in something we call diversion, diversion mm-hmm. of these medications, that they would sell them for profit on the street. And the, and the profits were uh, pretty obscene because uh, if someone had insurance that covered the cost of the prescription, mm-hmm. which was actually quite expensive, um, a monthly supply of OxyContin branded was twelve hundred dollars. Wow. So if somebody, so if somebody received, for example, three pills a day, ninety tablets
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, of OxyContin eighty, um, they could then go on the street and sell each pill for eighty dollars. Okay. So they would they would make um, you know, basically a monthly salary on um, selling this medication, not doing any work. Uh, simply by diverting or uh, these medications from you know proper use to to abuse. Right. So one one went from proper use to abuse, and that's how the uh, in part opioid epidemic started. Now when uh, restrictions came into place, and oxycodone, oxycodone as a molecule was recognized to be an issue, mm-hmm. and we've known it to be an issue. Um, then these restrictions created a different problem. It drove a lot of people from um, oxycodone who were patients after they've been cut off by their physicians into illicit sources, which is typically now heroin. So when they went to heroin, the problem became is that there wasn't enough heroin to go around, and there was an intense competition going on among dealers uh, as to who had the best heroin. So they began to adulterate heroin with a different drug uh, called fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Fentanyl is a powder. uh, It's made in China, uh, but we use that in surgery as a liquid for injection. Mm -hmm. And So the problem with fentanyl is dosing. Mm. Fentanyl is an incredibly potent drug. It's 100 times more powerful than morphine. Mm-hmm. And uh, when some when something is that powerful, you use a much smaller dose. So, my, uh, so fentanyl is dosed in micrograms, micrograms, okay. not milligrams, micrograms. That is one thousand times less than a milligram. Wow. So, and 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 that in turn is one thousand times less than a gram. And so, heroin is sold in grams.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And so a drug dealer, which would get a illicit or illegal uh, fentanyl powder, say from China or from uh, south of the border,
2: mm-hmm.
1: would mix microgram quantities of fentanyl mm-hmm. with gram quantities of heroin, mm-hmm. uh, not understanding the pharmacology or even basic math,
2: mm.
1: w- would, would create fatal uh, concoctions of uh, heroin-fentanyl mix and uh, kill the users. And so what we saw in 2017, 2018 was a massive, massive 300, 500 fold, uh, fold not full, fold, 300, 500 percent
2: mm.
1: increase in fentanyl deaths. So mm. if we had an epidemic, that was the illicit fentanyl and that primarily targeted the heroin users, which we've built up over many years and in part, some of the physicians were to blame.
0: Okay. Um that that's very very interesting and I hopefully after this we can maybe dedicate a podcast if you have time specifically to addiction and and how that works. I'd like to go back a little bit back to your physician as a career and if 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 you can just talk about a little bit about your uh just your daily schedule. You know, someone maybe that's looking into a career like yours. What's a daily schedule like? How many patients do you meet throughout the day? Something like that.
1: So, um, my specialty specifically may be an outlier as as to how um, how much or how little I work. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, typically, physicians work anywhere from fifty to sixty hours a week. Um, mm-hmm. I work um, about forty five. Uh, on occasion i 'll work maybe forty eight rarely i 'll work more than fifty hours. Um, there was a time where I worked about fifty sixty hours a week, but wow. that was in the past i didn 't want to do that anymore, and it was entirely up to me it wasn't it wasn 't um something I had to do. it was entirely my choice okay. So right now I have office-based practice. Uh, it's primarily eight to five with an hour lunch. Uh, right. I typically run over and I rarely take lunch, or I mean I eat the food, but I don't take the hour lunch.
3: Right.
1: My employee, my employees do, but I don't. Okay. And um, I work about forty-five, forty-six hours a week, and for the most part, since I am in an office setting, I don't have to take call. Now, call means that a physician goes to the hospital to cover in case an emergency arises, Mm -hmm. um, and these doctors typically have to either sleep in the hospital or live uh, very close by, and they have, to this day, they have pagers, and now they increasingly use cell phones to be available and to come to the hospital immediately if there's a need that uh, comes up. Mm So. uh, as, as far as my job, intensity or workload is something I'm in um, complete control of
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because I, I can regulate how many patients I see in a day. And I basically go on based on what the need is. What I do is um, I start at 8 in the morning, I go at 5, and I see typically, on average, about 35 patients a day.
3: Okay.
1: So, sometimes it's 30 patients, sometimes it's 40. Um, but typically my target is 35 patients a day and I um, got to this point because of uh, a learned efficiency. Okay. So when I started out uh, in practice my first year 20 patients for me seemed somewhat overwhelming then 25 was sort of doable and I felt like I was getting better at it but over time uh, especially three to five years into practice there are certain patterns that we immediately recognize so you don't have to spend as much time interviewing the patient and you develop certain tools and tricks to get more information quicker mm-hmm. like uh, forms that patients fill out I don't have to ask as many questions I can get a lot of that information from a form that someone filled out before they came into the office
3: okay.
1: and uh, I also review the records that they came with very quickly so I get a lot of information so I can go straight to the physical exam making a diagnosis, ordering appropriate studies, and uh, moving forward. Um, but as far as my workload, uh, it's very reasonable. I'm very happy. I do get tired. Um, the procedure days can be long and difficult. They can be 9, 10 hours a day where I stand and wear protective equipment like a lead shield, mm-hmm. uh, goggles, etc. Wow. But at the end of the day, uh, it's an incredibly satisfying career, and uh, I just couldn't imagine... I couldn't even imagine 10 years ago how, um, how great my life would be today, uh, like it is, because my work really gives me satisfaction and joy, mm-hmm. uh, I really enjoy doing what I do, mm-hmm. I enjoy interacting with people, making a difference in their life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I meet the people from different fields and I, o- I also learn something new from them, so I teach them about their condition and in return they come from many different specialties. I treat the, the, the old, the young, the rich and poor, uh, male, female, and I get to learn about people's problems, um, okay. not just about their problems, I learn about their interests, uh, I learn about their careers, I learn uh, a lot about the world, okay. because we can't know everything, and you learn by interacting with people. Right. So, okay. so from, from that perspective, I, I think my job is incredibly satisfying. I'm very happy and grateful um that God led me down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um overall my job satisfaction is probably a ten out of ten.
0: Honestly, that's that's amazing. Um a lot of nurses I spoke to either or or physicians. I haven't spoken to many physicians, but nurses, people in the medical field, they either love their job or they hate their job. Why why did you choose to, to steer towards this career or this, this, this path? Was it something that you knew initially you, you wanted to work with these types of patients or is like just through your experience, was, did, is this what you were led to?
1: So uh, there's a great deal of control mm-hmm. um, for any particular employee. We're not servants, we can change jobs. Okay. And so uh, the reason there is a great degree of job dissatisfaction is, in my view, uh, it has to do with a choice. Um, So I had a choice to be in an operating room.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I had a choice to be an employee of a hospital or be in a partnership or be in a hospital all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew the potential that I would have to take call, and I knew that, uh, you know, uh, up front, I would probably uh, be better off financially, but I chose not to take that path. Mm -hmm. I figured if I was... um, Persistent in the beginning, mm-hmm. and if I delayed gratification, uh, financial one initially, that I could catch up later on, and in a process uh, save my sanity. So um, I chose to go into clinical private practice. So I am in private practice, and mm-hmm. what what the advantage of that is is that I work for a, a group of like-minded physicians, mm-hmm. and. Um, we bill the patients directly, the, the finances come to us, mm-hmm. we choose over which employees we hire, mm-hmm. we bonus them if they perform, uh, we get rid of them if they don't perform,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we create an environment for ourselves at, and patients where there's accountability
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, there's control. If there's okay. something we mm-hmm. don't like, we change. The problem with job dissatisfaction is when someone else is in control of your job and mm-hmm. that typically is administrators who are not in a medical field mm-hmm. and they enforce all sorts of bureaucratic useless rules and these bureaucratic useless rules is what wears people out. If you ask a nurse, if you ask a physician, what is it that they hate most about their job? It's administrative tasks. It's not patient care. It's almost never patient care. It's administrative tasks that drive that that drive um, job dissatisfaction. That's true. So. so when when we built this practice that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. um, I've uh, I've used technology to my advantage, um, uh, specifically electronic medical records, which can be a great burden uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of physicians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, you know, through creation of templates and, and pre-populated, you know, uh, different smart phrases, mm-hmm. I spend very little time charting. I can see 35 patients in a day. I do not use a dictation system where somebody else transcribes what I say into a, a little um, speakerphone or a little recorder. Mm-hmm. I use a computer. And by clicking smart phrases, um, you know, I can populate a, a full patient encounter in less than three minutes. And a patient can leave my office visit with the entire note and treatment plan in their hand. Wow. Which is very, diff- which is very different from a hospital where uh, people are bugged down with, you know, uh, crazy uh, charting systems, electronic medical records that are built not by physicians, mm-hmm. they're built by administrators, and uh, the motive behind these systems and the objective of these systems is to collect revenue. So those are all revenue-driven. Mm. So healthcare in the U.S. has become very problematic because of growth of administrators and useless rules and that is what drives the greatest degree of physician dissatisfaction. It's well publicized, um, it, there's literature all over the place, and um, it's administrative workload and burden, I would say that it, the administrative burden is what drives nursing and physician dissatisfaction. So um, if a nurse is burned out, mm-hmm. she can find a different job, she can move to a different uh, location, but to continue on and complain um, that's not a solution to a problem. Okay.
3: That, that I started, I've,
1: start, I've started three startups, and two of them crashed and burned, and you know financially I suffered. Mm-hmm. But in the end, money's money, but I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm happy when I'm in control, when I'm happy when my patients are happy. And the way that, to create that environment is to provide what's best for the patient, not what's best for my hospital administrator. Or, what's best for the CEO's bonus at the end of the year?
0: Correct. That makes sense.
1: So, I think the problem with the today's healthcare is not physicians, it's not nurses, it's administrators who uh, try very hard to make themselves uh, important, uh, but they actually are a reason for this uh, burnout among physicians and nurses and a great degree of uh, job dissatisfaction.
0: I mean, I had, I had somebody that works in the office side of the hospital system in administration, and uh, I think she, she said that 40% of, the of like, for example, Sutter or Kaiser, 40% of the entire staff is all administration with, like, separate huge offices, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's really starting to make sense because they're trying to implement things that think they make sense to them when uh, the f- uh, patient and physician relationship is different than, like you were saying, charting and nurses always complain about charting. Uh, I have never have time because I have to chart. So why why did you choose? So that was a little bit about why you chose to kind of join a practice where you practice for yourself. Um, why 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 become a physician out of all the medical medical uh-huh. different medical professions there are.
1: So, to make a difference in someone's life, um, you can be in uh, administrative role mm-hmm. to help them you know deal with the finances you can you can be in a supportive role right but you you can be in a decision making role mm-hmm. so I wanted to be in a in a position where I was the decision maker okay uh, not uh, you know uh, uh, executing orders of someone else, which I may disagree with or I may have different ideas about. So I think it has to do with the personality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, some people are type A personality. Some people are triple A personality. Some people are type B personality. It all depends on what um, gives someone um, uh, satisfaction in, in their job. Okay. For some people, it's very stressful to make difficult decisions. Um, and frankly, they don't want to deal with those types of decisions. They don't want to be the decision makers that have, can have a negative outcomes. It's easy to take credit for when something goes well, but when something goes catastrophically wrong, it's a very different and uh, difficult place to be in.
3: Right.
1: So, um, since you know, since high school, I, I knew that I did not want to be a support role. I wanted to be the decision maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to be at the top of the decision making chain, mm-hmm. and I didn't care how long it was going to take me. So I did whatever was necessary uh, to get to where I am, and what it took was an incredible uh, amount of very hard work, uh, took uh, an incredible amount of persistence. Um, there were a lot of distractions along the way. When I, when I started college in 97, mm-hmm. uh, computers became very hot in 99, and people were dropping out left and right to take uh, programming courses, and were getting paid a lot of money mm-hmm. right out of uh, two-year you know, college degree and uh, continue on to be very successful. And so if money was a motivator, It misled or uh, detracted a lot of people from their objectives in life, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't me. I was focused, and... I did eventually become uh, distracted because there was an another there was another industry that I became inter- interested in
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was biotech. There was an explosion of biotech in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and I, and I wanted to get a master's degree in molecular biology and physiology and biophysics, which I did.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: but um, I wasted two years of my life on that because I to this day don't use any of this knowledge that I acquired and mm-hmm. spent a lot of time um, uh, obtaining. Uh, but that still would have been a satisfying career because I would have been in a setting where I affect people's lives on a more global or a much larger scale, mm-hmm. discovering drugs, discovering new medications, discovering new treatments. Um, and But again, um, I didn't want to be in a position where I was um, told what to do, uh, where I was going to have a routine, 9 to 5. I wanted to have creativity. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have input. And I wanted my thoughts and ideas to be implemented in whatever I saw or dealt with, and so mm-hmm. I realized that the only the only way to do that, the only way to have this satisfaction, is to go straight to the top. Now, mm-hmm. it's it's much easier said than done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, people that get to the top face enormous competition, right. uh, and that's that's where that's where persistence persistence and a lot of hard work becomes important and intelligence is not necessarily intelligence itself Mm -hmm. is not necessarily a determinant of success while it is important
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I think it's persistence and just hard work that um, that propels someone to success in life and so uh, the problem with a lot of young people nowadays is impatience um, so when I look at my kids, you know, they want everything now, they want everything within a few minutes. It's, it's a very rare or foreign concept mm-hmm. for someone to look at things in, in, in decades. Mm-hmm. So if you look at your life, it's like, what is my life going to look like? Um, if I just get this short little career completed, that takes me a year or two to complete, well, I still have to deal with that for another 50, 60 years. So if you look at, look at things long term if you look at a 50-year career, Mm -hmm. 50-year career, so you can spend two years uh, on an educational objective where you are in the bottom uh, of of the support role Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, and take orders from someone to the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. Um, then as you evolve as a person, um, you might resent your job and resent people around you, but that is your uh, capability. That's what... Uh, that's what you're capable of doing You can't do any more because of your training
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, versus spending a decade, for example, uh, early on, getting all the way to the top and then having so many different options and directions that you can take in life. Uh, to me, that was incredibly sat- satisfying and liberating. Um, I could do many things right now. I'm not just a physician. I also do a lot of clinical research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I take on different projects. I do a lot of consulting. I deal with um, you know, pharmaceutical companies, I deal with uh, equipment manufacturers, I, mm-hmm. I travel, mm-hmm. I go to conferences, so my life is incredibly uh, fulfilling and meaningful, um, and I have a lot of freedom in what I do. That's awesome. But the, the sacrifices, the sacrifices were enormous, I basically gave up a decade of my life Mm-hmm. Where everybody, you know, went out, uh, had a good time, ate, drove around in nice cars. Uh, I was focused. I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't enjoy any of these things when they did, but I do now to a much greater degree. Yeah. So, but also, what gives me joy in life right now are not things, not things. I don't. I have very little uh, appreciation for material things. What gives me the greatest joy in life is relationships with people that I would never have met. Have it had it had not been a physician, mm. um, I I meet incredible people. Uh, I I share incredible experiences with them because I'm a physician, and that would not be possible if I was in a support role. Um, and I meet people from different uh, you know careers. For example, I treat a lot of police officers. And, mm-hmm. And, and firefighters, and I treat the rich and the poor, I, 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 I treat people who are, you know, basically on no income to billionaires. Yeah. And so I went flying on helicopters with police. I, I learned all about flying. I went flying with uh, on a on a plane and learned how to fly a little bit. And I've I've done a multitude of experiences because of my exposure to people that I deal with on a daily basis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I could even I could have even imagine a life like that. Um, I couldn't even imagine of you know uh, having uh, this kind of exposure because most people belong to country clubs where they where they interact with people like that and they pay a lot of money for them. Yes. But here I am here I am living a good life, uh, not only helping them, mm-hmm. but you know, their gratitude in return is very rewarding for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, I, I think this is at the absolute best thing that could happen to me. I think this is an incredible blessing for me in life. Uh, but it did require a lot of hard work and persistence. And so if, if I was going to hammer a point home mm-hmm. for everybody making a career choice, is you have to sit down and basically draw a timeline of your life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? Start with time zero and end with 75, 80. Most people work till 70. That's a very long time to be working.
2: Mm. And
1: retirement age uh, will change eventually to 70. It's 66 right now and, and change, but people don't realize that they will spend a long time working. The problem they also don't uh, think about is that as they age, their ability to work will decrease. So they will have degenerative disease of their spine. They will have illnesses they'll limit them from doing a a lot in their work and at the same time if they are in low income brackets they'll bring on additional stress of being unable to provide for their family
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so it's it's not just it's not just finances that should make decisions uh, because uh, one can make you know good amount of money up front when they're healthy but they're not going to continue to make that money as they age for example one can go you know and and climb poles and be an electrician and make you know hundred thousand plus a year,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but if they fall, uh, they hurt themselves on the job. They won't be able to do that till they're sixty six. Yeah. So, so people don't realize that they're not going to stay the way they are. They're going to continue to change. Their bodies continue to change, and they need to be in a career that is not only satisfying mentally, you know, financially, personally, but also doesn't strain their 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 uh, relationships and the family does a strain relationships with, with uh, their their close ones, um, and gives them a lot of uh, job satisfaction. So for me, that was medicine. For me, it was natural because when I was growing up, my mom used to take me to work. She was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I had this exposure uh, subconsciously early on, and I, I liked the environment, and I liked the white coat that she, she wore. And uh, to me, um, it was almost a natural thing to do. But if someone wants to decide on a career in medicine, mm-hmm. um, they should simply volunteer. Uh, it's very easy to get volunteering positions at different locations, and typically people go to hospitals thinking that's where I, I see real medicine. But yes, you can see real medicine in hospitals, but you also see a lot of uh, unhappy people grumbling about administrative burdens, so they get discouraged from that. So right. I encourage people to go to... Um, you know, private offices, and see what physicians do, and maybe act as scribes or some kind of a support role, where they can learn and get a good um, um, view from mm-hmm. uh, as an outsider
0: mm-hmm.
1: of what it is and what it means.
0: Okay, that that's awesome. You, I was just going to ask you a couple minutes ago about how, the how can I part of this podcast is how can somebody that's looking to be in the medical field. You know, what can they expose themselves to? And you mentioned uh, actually a very valuable point there, because when I hear people trying to become nurses, they're saying, oh, it's so difficult to become a volunteer at Kaiser. It's so difficult to become a volunteer at Sutter Hospital. But you just mentioned that there's private clinics, private uh, practices that would. I don't know. Do you guys need help or volunteers do? how, How often does a volunteer come into your practice asking for a? all the time? Okay, awesome.
1: But the the problem with a lot of volunteers is uh, there's a lot of um, I, I encounter a lot of entitlement. I encounter a lot of laziness. Okay. Uh, people come in and and uh, they they want to you know volunteer for a day and get a letter of recommendation for volunteering for eight hours. Uh, you know there's uh, I I meet people who aren't simply serious. Um, you know, and you can teach that uh, life and the difficulty of life and, and the threat of poverty mm-hmm. will discipline these people at the right time, but it's not my job to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know where I came from, and I knew what I wanted to get out of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, the motto I've always lived by mm-hmm. from since very young age, the model I've always lived by is the following. Nothing that is worthwhile is easy nothing that is worthwhile is easy and if it's worthwhile you better believe that it's difficult Mm. and if it's worthwhile you better believe that you will encounter fierce competition Mm. but that should not be a detractor that should not uh, cause one to lose focus that should uh, only energize a person who wants to be where they uh, see themselves in Mm -hmm. and. Again, um, you know, I tried very hard. Um, um, I don't come from family of, of geniuses. Mm-hmm. I don't come from people who were, you know, physicists or or, or or doctors. I come from a regular family. I'm a first doctor in the family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it took it took for the most part persistence. It took very hard work, and you know, I'll I'll take that into put that into perspective. Uh, I took ESL classes when I came to the United States at 14. Mm-hmm. My my knowledge of the English language was minimal. Mm-hmm. I went to a Chicago public high school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, uh, my my command of the English language was laughable. Um, and then I took the most difficult test one can take, which is a medical college admission testing called MCAT. Eight-hour test, majority of which tests one's ability to dissect information from very difficult passages Mm -hmm. and so majority of people that do well, vast majority uh, of people that do well on this section of the test are English majors. Mm -hmm. They come from families of uh, professors or families of people who have an incredible command of the English language Mm -hmm. and very, very few of these people, very few have any accents in English. So here I am, not only did I learn the language Mm -hmm. from, from scratch, Right I've mastered it mm-hmm. and, and and it was only because of effort and work I put into it, so the barriers were all against me. Mm-hmm. There were incredible barriers, mm-hmm. but i didn't I didn't look away and say, "You know what, that's too difficult. you know I didn't blame uh, my parents for bringing me to this country too late I, I didn't blame anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. I saw an opportunity, I saw an opportunity, and I, I told myself I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I can, and however long it takes me, but I'm going to do it." and I did Persistence is key to success in, in any career. Whatever that career is, it's persistence. And again, nothing that is worthwhile is easy, ever. That's and awesome. so to complain, to grumble, that's just something lazy people do. I have, I ha- I have no sympathy for that ever, mm-hmm. and they are masters of, of their success. If, if they want an average life, if they want a life of struggle, and that's their choice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but the, I didn't see that in myself. I've, I've persisted. I've um, I've grown both professionally. And in my professional growth, I've also found myself a niche where I can spiritually help a lot of people. And I, mm-hmm. I see my ministry and my work, which is unique to my profession.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I interact with 35 people on a daily basis. I can minister to them in, in ways that most people can't. Mm-hmm. I find them at the right moment, a desperate moment, and I can witness to them about love of God, mm-hmm. which a lot of people can do. And so to me, that is also incredibly satisfying. Um, I don't have to go on a mission to Haiti or Africa to minister. I minister right where I am every yeah. single day. And so to me, you know, my life right now at this point as it is, uh, is, is, is such a blessing that I couldn't even imagine it that way 10, 15 years ago, but it didn't seem that way. Mm-hmm. The process of getting to where I am was painful. Mm-hmm. It was brutal. It was disappointing. Sometimes I lost sight of where I was going, mm-hmm. but I persisted. I persisted despite the setbacks, but despite the difficulties, despite the struggles. I persisted. So, and in the end, and in the end, I think this is a great blessing from God that I'm able to do what I love. <clears throat> and to me, job satisfaction to me is the single most important thing um, in, in, in my life right now, uh, when it comes to, you, you know, career and, 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 and relationships and everything else, because that also allows me to go home and be with my kids and mm-hmm. go out on weekends and, and, um, do activities and not, you know, live in a hospital, uh, and, uh, serve other
0: people. Mm-hmm. So last question is you talked about hard work. You talked about persistence. Um, and a laziness. Some volunteers that come into the office are lazy. Talk to me about, were you always this disciplined or did you have to learn discipline along the way and how did you do that? Or what instilled?
1: Everything, everything can be learned. But I think uh, I think maybe to some degree I was driven <coughs> internally. Mm-hmm. Um, since I was 14, I had a job. Uh, when I was 16, I had three jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 18, I went to college full-time. I went mm-hmm. to a university full-time, and I had two additional jobs. Okay. So um, this is something that you know, was part of my life as I went through it. Um, I like the intensity of everything. Um, mm-hmm. I, I never saw myself as a lazy person. Um, I'm actually uh, quite annoyed by laziness, and laziness leads to poverty. Uh, lazy people make excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, lazy people blame others for their shortcomings. Uh, laziness is a, uh, laziness goes hand in hand with procrastination. I'm going to mm-hmm. do that tomorrow. No, you're going to do that today. You're going to mm-hmm. get on it today. you are got to start now. Now is the time to start your dream. Now is the moment to pursue your dream. It's not tomorrow. It's not next year. It's right now because time passes by, flies by you,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? And whatever, whatever you do with that time is your choice, your decision. Amen. So uh, laziness is prevalent; it's widespread, uh, and lazy people make make excuses for Amen. their failures. Amen. And they blame somebody else, and they always blame somebody else.
0: Amen. I, and I, I'm trying to remember every time I felt lazy, I always had a reason of why I wasn't lazy, why I couldn't do something or the other thing. Andre, thank you so much for for making the time um, to coming on the podcast. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, really, really appreciate it super interesting to me personally it was like a it was like listening to a sermon almost you know (laughs) to to lazy people i heard i hope um some some of them out there could definitely learn from this i know i did